Hey, y'all. Just a note. This episode contains a reference to suicide and some audio of violence that might be disturbing for some folks. Just wanted to give you a heads up before you listen. I greet you all in a spirit of peace this morning. I greet you all in, in 2006, Mayor Ray Nagin gave a speech on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Lots of people were still evacuated, scattered across the country. Everybody in New Orleans is dispersed over 44 different states. The city was still rebuilding, and Nagin knew that plenty of evacuees were worried about what would happen to their neighborhoods while they were gone, that people with power and money might see an empty city as an opportunity for change. We're debating whether we should open this or close that. We're debating whether property rights should trump everything or not. We're debating how should we rebuild one of the greatest cultural cities the world has ever seen. Nagin was trying to rally people. Really trying. We as black people, it's time. It's time for us to come together. It's time for us to rebuild a New Orleans, the one that should be a chocolate New Orleans. And I don't care what people are saying uptown or wherever they are. This city will be chocolate at the end of the day. This city will be a majority African-American city. It's the way God wants it to be. You can't have New Orleans no other way. It wouldn't be New Orleans. So before I get into too much more trouble, He was promising that the blackest city in America would stay that way, that New Orleans would come back just the way it was. But he was making a promise he wouldn't keep. Part 7, Destiny. Houston was the worst part. I tell you, I will never go back there, not even a visit. If it was the last place in the United States of America, I live on a boat. Not going back. Not going back to Texas, ever. Leanne Williams and her family had spent a year traveling across the country. First Lafayette, then Mississippi then Arizona, then Texas. Before Katrina, she was an honor roll student, had never been in any real trouble before. But in Houston, things changed. She was bullied. Because they would say mean stuff. Go back to New Orleans. Nobody don't care about y'all. And y'all refugees and all kind of stuff. Dirty. You dirty. I walked in dirty, nasty water. And they just was mean. Texas was mean. And I would act out if somebody tell me something. I was fighting. I had a fight. She beat up a girl at school and spent a night in jail. After she got sentenced to reform school and probation, her mom decided she'd had enough. So just before Leanne's 16th birthday, they were on their way back to New Orleans. It's like we couldn't make it no faster. See, when I saw that Welcome to New Orleans sign, I'm like, I'm home. 
getting into New Orleans that day, it might have seemed like things were going back to normal. Just off I-10, the roof was back on the Superdome. The Saints were playing there again, and they just signed Leanne's favorite player, Drew Brees. And here it is, the opening of the Louisiana Superdome, the grand opening right now through 13 months of labor, pain, tears, and sorrow. The casinos were booming. The business district was coming back. And this town's coming back. This town is better today than it was yesterday, and it's going to be better tomorrow than it was today. People were partying on Bourbon Street. And that is a shot of the French Quarter tonight. It is crowded, tourists visiting, very much alive, that part of the city. And I got to tell you, the French Quarter is cleaner than I have ever seen it in my entire life. They've hired a new Before Katrina, Leanne had lived in the Lafitte housing projects with her mom and dad. The bricks had been around for over 60 years, some of the first public housing for black folks in the country, but they were still closed when she got back. The federal government had been trying to shut them down for years. They were trying to get rid of all the big housing projects in the city. The problem was that a lot of people lived there. But after the flood, residents were scattered across the country. And the city saw an opportunity. In 2007, the city council held a meeting to vote on a plan to demolish four of the biggest housing projects. Magnolia, Calliope, St. Bernard, and Lafitte. Protesters showed up to try to stop it. The scene outside of City Hall was chaos. Protesters pushed against police, surged against the doors of City Hall, but they were barricaded. Only a few people could see what was going on inside. Inside, supporters and opponents of the demolition argued for two and a half hours. It would be a violation of human rights to conduct wholesale demolition of public housing. I believe that the past model of public housing in this city has been a failed one. Who said that we want our homes demolished? What, what, who said that? We the situation by ignoring it have let our public housing developments in ruin and put down... Let me tell you something. You try to take away our homes, our pride, our self-respect, our dignity, but we refuse to let you take it. We're going to continue to fight back... But the arguments in favor of demolishing the projects were winning. The mayor himself had written a letter in favor of demolition. The federal government was promising a lot of money to build new mixed-income units. City officials argued they could beautify the city and find a way to house everyone who'd left. Change is hard, and in New Orleans, it's even harder. Those of us who are sitting here today, we were elected to be fair and to use our own life experiences and love for this city to help guide us in difficult decisions like we have to make. A course which, a course which will make New Orleans great again, not only for the few, but for the all. The scene outside the chambers got more and more chaotic. Police pepper sprayed and tasered people in the crowd. They tasered protesters who made it inside, too. Inside, the vote went down calmly. It was unanimous in favor of demolition. In a few weeks, the bulldozers would move in and start knocking down 4,500 apartments. We couldn't come back home, and that just brought me all the way down. 
They just shut it down. Couldn't come back. And I don't know why. Many families who lived in those projects never came back. Rents rose in the city by almost 50% in two years. In some places, it doubled. But Leanne's family managed to find a two-bedroom house to rent on Marigny Street, not too far from the French Quarter. There were a lot of folks cramped up. Leanne, her parents, two aunts, her brother, her sister, and quite a few cousins. But Leanne had a ball in that two-bedroom house. You know the pity pet was rolling. The cars was rolling. Playing for 50 cents, change everywhere. And my cousins, when they came to school and they kind of blended in with my friends and we were just always together, all us. The fancy high school she just started when Katrina hit was closed down. She ended up going to Frederick Douglass High School with her cousins. But she says it just wasn't the place that was going to take her where she wanted to go. It's like the teachers didn't, like, really care to teach you that much. It's like if you didn't want to learn, you didn't have to. You had a choice. I could put it like that. You had a choice. If you didn't feel like learning today when you came to school, you didn't have to learn. You could wind the halls if you wanted to. You could walk out the front door if you want to. Pass the security guard right up. She hadn't had time to take the SAT or ACT, and she had no idea how to even apply for college, really. She talked to a local university about going, but her family couldn't get the financial aid paperwork together. College wasn't going to happen. I just was crushed. I just didn't understand what was the problem. She had a job at Sabaro. She started dating someone new. In August, almost three years to the day after Katrina, Hurricane Gustav skated by New Orleans. It didn't do much damage, but Leanne remembers it because around then she found out she was pregnant. I was scared. I didn't want want a child. I was a child myself. I had plans on what I wanted to do, and I wanted to go to school, and I wasn't ready to raise someone. But I'm having a baby. Leanne was going to have a little girl. She needed to figure out what to name her. Oh, my God, it was a battle. It was so many names, Kia, this and that. And and I'm like, Destiny, wow, yeah, that's beautiful. Like, that was my first time hearing the name Destiny. You get chills? Yeah, just fit for her. Somebody that I never even met is like I heard Destiny for the first time. I named my daughter Destiny. Leanne worked hard to save up money for her baby girl. She went to school and held down two jobs. But her boyfriend stopped showing up for work, lost his job. And Leanne noticed that he was starting to act strange. He stopped going to work, and he just started acting weird and always lashing out and angry all the time, and he just was a different person. I was with Destiny's father for a minute before I really realized that it's not just me I'm protecting his destiny too. It was hard, but eventually she realized things weren't going to get better. So she decided to leave him. She raised destiny on her own. She worked two jobs. She went to community college. But it was hard to get stability. One day at work, she was accused of stealing money from the safe. She insisted she hadn't done it, but she was prosecuted anyway. She went to trial. 
they had black folks on the jewelry, they took all them off. I had like older white folks, like lawyers and stuff like, I'm like, oh my God, I'm going down. This, I was like, I'm going down. I'm going to jail for something that I didn't do. That was my first time being black and dealing with the law. And so many times I hear, oh, you, we black, they don't this us, I'm black. I actually, like, went through it. It turned out there was videotape of the incident, and it wasn't even her on the tape. She was found not guilty. She didn't go to jail, but the charge itself was punishment. She lost her job. She couldn't pay her rent, so she lost her apartment, too. She was going to have to start over again. And I remember just being so depressed and down and out to... I tried to take my own life. I was in Covington Mental Hospital for major depression. And they prescribed me Zoloft. I remember that. It was just over four years after she'd gotten back to New Orleans. Five years after Katrina. Like so many other Katrina kids, her life had been disrupted over and over again. They'd been separated from home and family, dealt with violence, homelessness, and PTSD. Leanne left the city as a kid, still excited about the first day of school outfits and booty braids. She came back and was forced to grow up. I just felt alone again in my city where I wanted to be. Alone in my city. Leanne had finally made it home but it felt like home didn't want her anymore. Maybe it didn't want anybody like her anymore. Hi, this is Alvin, producer here at The Atlantic. I've been working with Van and editors and other producers and developers and honestly such a long list of people on floodlines for almost a year. We wanted to make sure that this story got the attention that it deserved. And if you like the way the show turned out and you want to get unlimited access to all of our journalism here at The Atlantic, the best way to do that is to subscribe. You can do that at theatlantic.com slash support us. S-U-P-P-O-R-T-U-S. Thanks. When I came into the inside of my house, it was just a catastrophe. Um. Everything was topsy-turvy. It was mud. It just it's just smelled like rotten, something rotten. Um, I looked up and I could see the sky because the parts of my roof were completely gone. Nothing was really salvageable. Alice Craft Kearney was back in the city, too. Her house was in bad shape. Her mother's house in the Lower Ninth Ward was destroyed. Before Katrina... Alice had been a nurse at Charity Hospital for almost 20 years. Charity had been a landmark for black New Orleanians. It had been around since the 1700s, and that's where lots of older folks in the city were born. It was a safety net hospital. They cared for a lot of poor folks without insurance, and it was the only place lots of them could get mental health care. Charity didn't flood that badly during Katrina, but it was never reopened. Oh, it was, that was, it's like they say, that's fighting words, really. You know, well, charity isn't coming back. Well, what are you going to do? Eventually, a new hospital was built down the street, and Alice was let go. I was given, as they say, my walking papers. I was, 
told that after 19 and a half years working at Charity Hospital, my services were no longer needed. Alice spent a lot of time in her brother's house in the Lower Ninth Ward after she got back, trying to figure out what to do next. One day I was in, I was in my room at my brother's house, and I don't know how to describe it, except it was like I was lying down, and I, it was like I could hear it. It's like, take care of my people, and I'll take care of you. And I'm like, what in the devil? I said, no, 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 I know I'm not hearing that. And it came to me again. Take care of my people, and I will take care of you. What kind of voice was it? it I, I can't describe it. It's, it was just it was just something. It was like something just was planted in my spirit. And I, 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 I said, Lord, I know you're not talking to me. And, I'm, and, and I, I, I just tried to shrug it off, and it, it came back to me again. Alice knew what she had to do. She decided to start a clinic to help people trying to come back to the Lower Ninth Ward. Her friend, who was also a nurse, had a house they could use. Volunteers helped get the place running. They served mostly Black folks in the neighborhood. Post-traumatic stress, anxiety, and depression. I mean, those were the three most prevalent diagnoses that I saw in my clinic. Alice was doing what she'd seen Black folks in the Lower Ninth Ward do forever. Taking care of her own. Filling in the gaps. Doing what the city couldn't or wouldn't do. But she kept running into roadblocks. First, there were code violations. She had trouble with the funding and Louisiana's Road Home Grant Program. Money was tight. Reimbursements from health insurance companies could take months to arrive, and she was often making ends meet with donations. A few years after she opened the clinic, she had to close it down. I tell people all the time, I said, I think about Nehemiah in the Bible. When they were building the wall, I said, I felt like you had to have a ham in one hand and a sword in another. In other words, you had to fight as well as try and rebuild, which was very difficult. It, it, it didn't feel like the effort was in your favor. And that's a difficult place to be. And I think that affected people mentally, too. Alice wasn't the only person hitting weird roadblocks. Black families all over the city had a harder time with securing money for rebuilding than white families. In the Lower Ninth, it was especially bad. Plenty land and houses there were never reclaimed. Many families who'd owned houses for generations didn't have title paperwork. And if they couldn't prove ownership, they couldn't get money. Some people who got FEMA trailers found out they were laced with formaldehyde. Only a few stores and restaurants returned. And all that seemed to make it easier for private developers to buy up land at cut rates. Meanwhile, parts of the rest of the city got to rebuilding. White residents came back more quickly than Black residents and were more likely to be able to stay in the homes they had before the flood. Alice is pretty discreet. But about all this, she has some things that she will say. Well, this is what I'll say. There was a large population of uh, professional African-Americans that left the city never to return again. So our city did actually become poor. Like they reported in the newspaper, they say it's poor, but it's whiter. 
it was hard to ignore the pattern. And many people figured the pattern was deliberate. To this day, plenty of people in the Lower Ninth Ward believe the levee there was deliberately blown up during Katrina to push black people out and take their land. I heard it all over town. Everybody around here heard the explosion. My family members in the night were saying they hearing a loud popping sound. A lot of people said they heard a big boom. They absolutely broke it purposely. I don't know whether it was an explosion or not. I wouldn't put it past them. After all, a levee had been blown up in 1927. People had worried about sabotage in 1965 during Hurricane Betsy, too. Lots of people wondered, how could all this be anything other than a plan? Maybe it's easy to dismiss this all as a conspiracy theory. But I think I get where it's coming from. People need explanations. And if you're not getting answers from people in charge, then you base your theory on what you know. We were going, and and folks were making plans for that land. I don't know if they got their marching orders from somebody to say, let this area just languish and die. But that's what it felt like. Was it poor planning or was it by design? We don't know. You know, it's a lot of questions. You, you know, it's, you, you really don't know because you're not in the room to know what really happened. You just know what the effect was on you. They've, they've <laughs> what I will say, when, when the story is finally told, it'll probably be one of the largest transfer of land from African-American homeowners to others. Others. To others. Katrina in New Orleans set the dichotomy for a lot of things that people of power thought they wanted to change, to change that they otherwise would have had holy hell changing. So it gave them an opportunity almost. One up. Fred Johnson never really left New Orleans after Katrina. He stayed behind for weeks in the Hyatt Hotel, running missions for the police and authorities. He got an early start on rebuilding his home in the 7th Ward. It was a double. His mother's old unit was next to his. She died before Katrina, and they'd given away all her clothes and most of her belongings. But there were two end tables he'd left sitting on the floor. My regret was that in those end tables where, is where she kept all of the picture books. Mm. And that, that, that did me in. I mean, that really did me in because by the time I could get to them, there were 40 different colors, you know what I mean? And I, I think the thing that tore me up the worst was the loss of those photographs. That got to me more than anything else. Were they like childhood photographs? Everything. Everything. Everything you could think about. My grandchildren won't get to see those pictures. So I don't have a point of reference to physically show them you know what I mean? When my mom passed, my grandson, I don't think he was one years old. M- may have just been one. So he never got to really know his great-grandmother. 
Fred's big on stuff like that. Lineage. Passing down memories. Passing down wealth through homes. He managed to rebuild and helped other folks do the same. But for Fred, it's not really about the houses. My primary feelings? I don't know what it is. It's, it's, it's a combination. It's a gumbo. It ain't one thing. It's multiple things. But I thank God for blessing me with the ability to think, to understand what I'm looking at. Because in New Orleans, we had a Katrina. In other places, they didn't have a Katrina, and it's happening to them. And it's called gentrification. People make communities, seven wars, six wars, eight wars, nine wars, I don't care what ward you in. People make communities. The absence of those people is a change in that community. The absence of those people is a radical change in those communities. Today, Leanne Williams is a long way from where she grew up. She lives out in the East now. I moved here about two months ago. I was staying in Algiers on the West Bank. The apartment was small. They didn't want to fix anything. And I was looking all over to find a house, and the only places they really have is in the East. The black population in Orleans Parish has diminished by almost a third since 2000. A new mixed-income development replaces Lafitte projects. Less than half of the 400 or so units there belong to people who used to live there. It's called Faubourg Lafitte now. And even in Treme, the old heart of Black New Orleans, where Leanne used to have pretend second lines, even that's changing. When we drove out to Dumaine Street with her one morning, she didn't recognize much. It makes me so mad. Every time, that's why I like coming around here, because it makes me so mad. It do. All this is gone. Everybody just pushed to the east. Everybody. Leanne doesn't go back to Dumaine Street much anymore. No reason. Her family is scattered now. Most of the folks around this way are strangers. A lot more of them are white. And the weirdest thing is that it's quiet. When I was younger, like the culture here, the music and everything, I always was around it, no matter what. Now it's just gone. So if you push us out, what's going to be left? Just come look at things like a museum. Just come and look at historic places and buildings, that's it. If you push us out, where the culture gonna come from? Everything's different. She thinks a lot about what things would be like if it weren't so different. Our kids would be here and they would be able to experience it and they'll be like history repeating itself. They'll probably get to experience what we did. Running around on Dumaine saying car time, car time. Probably picking up boxes and starting their own second line. I just wish we could come back. I'm telling you, if I win a lottery, I'm buying the whole block. So they're going to have to just leave, because I'm buying it. I'm buying the whole block. We sat on the porch of what used to be her grandmother's place, Big Jackie's house. 
knock on the door, hoping somebody might come let us in. Let Leanne see the tree in the backyard she'd grown up climbing, or the place where she used to play pity pat with her cousins. While we stood there, I thought about the things people will and will not say. Plenty of people say New Orleans is better off now, but they don't often say who paid the price. Nobody ever said to Leanne, I see that you were here. I see what you lost. No one ever explained. No one ever said, I'm sorry. We waited on that porch for a while, but nobody answered. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander, or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's beyond zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our beyond zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyond zero.